0: A good question to ask whenever you read from a book of the Bible is, why was that book written? We're going through the book of Colossians. So why did Paul write this letter to the Christians at Colossae? Well, he didn't give a purpose statement at the beginning of the letter. Instead, we can see his purposes by the way Paul writes and by what he writes. He is writing to warn and to encourage Paul warns the people in chapter 2 about a dangerous teaching. It was a teaching that would lead them away from an abundant life with God. The antidote to false teaching is God's word, God's truth. And so Paul encourages them and reminds them of some truths. He says that Jesus is Lord over all creation. That Jesus has secured redemption And restoration, now again, we don't use that word redemption much today in everyday conversation. It comes from the word redeem, which means to buy. Jesus pays our debt. Jesus buys us out of slavery to sin. And restoration, restoration means he's fixing what is broken. This redemption and restoration enables Christians to participate in Jesus' life, in Jesus' death, resurrection, and power spiritually spiritually. Paul goes on to encourage them to battle sin and selfishness and false ideas, to pursue holiness, and to live as Christians. And in this book, you'll see this phrase many times, in to live in Christ. So in our verses today, we'll see Paul continue to encourage and instruct the church. Remain seated, and let's read together our verses from the screen, Colossians 3, verses 1 to 17. Let's read this together. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, too, you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony." Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. If any parents have children and wish to dismiss them to stepping stones, you can do that. So Paul begins this letter. Again, it's chapter 3, so it's the middle of the letter. It begins verse 1. If you are raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Now, this verse continues a thought from chapter 2, which is, about being, quote, in Christ. The word if, and here's a little grammar lesson just to remind you, the word if signals a conditional statement. If a condition, then. So if you are raised with Christ, then seek the things that are above. But since Paul is writing to Christians, and Christians are people who have been raised with Christ, you can replace the word if with since. And so now you get this, the reading, since you have been raised with Christ, do these things. Now that phrase, raised with Christ, points us to the idea of Christians being united with Christ. Now this is a very important idea, even though we actually don't talk a lot about it in the church, and you may not have an understanding of what it means. It's very important because being united with Christ is the key to eternal life, And it is the key to our Christian life here on this earth. In the book of Colossians, Paul says, In Christ, or in him, at least 13 times. And the phrases, in Christ and in him, are like a code for being united with Christ. So what does it mean to be united with Christ? Well, it helps to do a before and after to get a sense of, to understand the result of being in Christ. So if you put up the slide, you see the before side and the after. The before is being is before being united with Christ, and that refers to our natural state which is affected by sin. So before we're reunited with Christ, and that applies to everyone, we're alienated from God by our rebellion. We alienate ourselves by our rebellion to God. We naturally are going to rebel against God. Spiritually, we're dead in our sin and we're objects of God's wrath and justice. Now, think about it. God would not be just since he is the creator and king of the universe if he did not condemn and judge all wrongdoing. We call that sin. So he's going to judge it. But look at the after on that side. After we are united with Christ, we're adopted by God. We're alive to God and we're objects of God's love and grace. That is a radical change. Radical change. So you can see that being united with Christ is very important. It has eternal consequences. In fact, a person is not a Christian if they're not in Christ. One Bible scholar put it this way. The Christian life is the present experience of the risen Christ living in the Christian in the Christian's heart, by his spirit. So, let me give you four things to help you understand what being in Christ includes. First, a Christian is spiritually united, connected to Jesus, or or united to Jesus by Jesus. He does the connecting, not us. A Christian is spiritually connected to Jesus by Jesus, so that when Jesus died on the cross, a Christian died to sin so that sin lost its dominance over the Christian. Now, Jesus died 2000 years ago on the cross. So there's some mystery here, he doesn't explain, but somehow spiritually Jesus connected himself with every Christian so that the power, when he died, that Christian died to the power and the power of sin was broken. Or as the Bible says, a Christian is no longer a slave to sin. But though the power of sin has been broken, a Christian still deals with the presence of sin while on this earth. And we're going to see where Paul talks about that in just a few verses. Next, a Christian is spiritually connected to Jesus by Jesus. So that when Jesus rose from the dead, the Christian is given eternal spiritual life that cannot be taken away. Again, it's a mystery. We don't know how Jesus does that, but he connects us with him with Christians with him. So when he rose with new life from the grave, we're given eternal life as well. And this new spiritual life awakens Christians to the reality of God and gives Christians a new perspective on life on this earth. Thirdly, a Christian is spiritually connected to Jesus by Jesus. And you notice I keep repeating that by Jesus. Okay. He's the one that does the work, the heavy lifting. He calls us to cooperate we're connected to Jesus by Jesus so that our everyday life involves Jesus through his spirit, our everyday life. Now, since this is true, though, here's, here's part of our thing that Bruce was talking about. In our own sinfulness, brokenness, we often ignore Jesus and ignore what he's done. And we try to make life about us. In fact, that's our nature is to make life all about us. But a Christian has been connected with Jesus in such a way that Jesus is involved in life every day. So here's the question. Do you and I live life each day with Jesus? And by that I mean, do you and I live every day talking to Jesus all through the day? Do you and I look to the Bible, think, I have a problem. I need to find God's wisdom and I find God's wisdom in God's word and find that wisdom there. That is so important. And then Bruce read that key thought, and it's in, it's in the sermon supplement. You see, if you and I don't live life with Jesus every day, all through the day, then we are living life on some other basis. Some other basis. Okay, As Wayne was talking about, whoever this other person is he was speaking of, looked to Buddha and what Buddha has said. A lot of people listen to our culture today. Or to some other religion. If you and I aren't living on the, on the basis of living life with Jesus, then we're living on some other basis, and it's not going to really help us. Fourthly, a Christian is given a new identity. A Christian is a child of God and loved by God. So this is part of what Paul was talking about when he said, since you are raised with Christ, since you are in Christ all these things are true and then in the so what we're going to do in the rest of the sermon is focus very briefly on the key commands in our verses that follow being raised with Christ and what you're going to see is that a Christian is given a whole new way to live life in verse one we are to seek the things that are above in verse 2 set your minds on things above Verse 5 and 8, put to death what is earthly, put away. And he gives a list of things to put away. Verses 10 and 12 and 14, there's things we are to put on. Verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you. And verse 17, do everything. Now, if if all it was was, here's a list, you do this list, and maybe you have some hope, (laughs) we'd be in trouble. But that isn't what he said. He starts off, we, we just talked about, for the Christian, where are you? You are in Christ. You are connected with Jesus. He's the one that gives the desire. He's the one that gives the power. And he says, these things, this, these commands, these, this is the way of life. This is where you find true life, true abundance, true hope is in doing these things. So verse 1, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated. The sense of the command is to be constantly seeking. So we're to seek Christ and to seek Christ-likeness every day. You see, God's goal for every Christian is to make us more like Jesus in our thinking, in our values, in our choices, in our living. He wants us to cooperate with him. Verse 2, set your minds on things that are above. That's related to verse 1. You may have heard the expression, he or she is so heavenly minded, they're of no earthly good. Okay, actually, I have not heard that saying in a long time. But this is not what Paul is talking about, by the way. Okay, this is not what Paul encourages. Paul is talking about having God's perspective on life. We're to be involved in life, totally engaged. Some people and some Christians think that, oh, I need to disconnect myself from life. That's where... That's where the monasteries came from. I need to connect myself from all that other stuff that happens in life so I can give myself wholly to God. God does call some people to that, but not many. The New Testament doesn't call us to that. It says live life here in the midst. You can't be any good as salt and a shaker. You've got to get on the meat, on the food. And God wants us to be connected with other people. And so a godly perspective gives us a different perspective on life. It sees life on this earth through the lens of God's word. For example, we are eternal beings. So our thoughts and our actions have eternal consequences. Another thought, we're created by God and we're created for God. So do we live life according to God's direction? And here I'm talking about at home, at school, at work, wherever we are. Now, this idea is parallel to the one I just mentioned, the key idea in the supplement. We all have some perspective on life. And so if our... In, now, we have what we say we believe, we have the way we live. Part of the what we're doing in our classes, like the 530 class that we have today called flourishing, is to begin to close the gap between what we say we think, and actually how we live. But if we, <clears throat> we all have some perspective on life, if it's, not a, if it's not God's perspective, a godly perspective, then we have some other perspective, and it's not going to lead to good living. In verse 3, we're told why we should set our minds on things above. He's, Paul says, because you've died with Jesus, and because your life is hidden with Christ, another way of saying you're united with Christ, When Jesus appears, Christians will appear with him in glory. Now, that's talking about something that hasn't happened yet. But look at what we're seeing in these verses in this letter from Paul. Christians are given a new identity, going from rebel to adopted child of God. We're given a new life. We're given a new basis for thinking and living. And as what we see here in this verse, we're also given a new hope for eternity. All because of what God has done for us. Next command, verse 5. Therefore put to death what is earthly in you. This command shows us that Christians are not done with temptations and sin while on this earth. Christians have, all people have, what the Bible calls the flesh. That's the nature that we're born with that's self-centered and selfish and encourages us to make life all about me. Now, what is earthliness? Everything that doesn't match God's character. What's earthliness is everything that does not match God's character. Well, verse 5 gives us some examples. Immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. And you know that this is not intended to be a complete list because in verses 8 and 9, he gives us more put-offs. Okay, he says put off anger and wrath. And malice, I like that word malice. It, on its surface, it doesn't tell you anything about it, what it means. Okay, but what it means is evil intent. Evil intent. So when you and I say something and we do something, and we're trying to dig under somebody and to get at them, and we're trying to hurt them, what malice says is you meant to do that. You meant to. To do that. Malice, slander, obscene talk, and lying. Now notice what God is doing here in the Bible. He, he's not just preaching, as my dad used to say. He's meddling. Okay, he's getting into where we live in, ter- in terms of what we're doing. All right. So we're we're to put off not only actions, but we're also supposed to put off attitudes and motivation. All of a sudden, God just took the bar the bar and he just whoop put it way up there. You see, you and I might be able to put off some things we know are not good. You know, like there's somebody you really don't like and you just really enjoy getting at them when you talk to them and say, oh, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. And so maybe for a little bit you don't do that. So we can put off our actions for a little bit, but only God can change our attitudes and our motivations. And only God can consistently change our actions. So those are some put-offs. Verse 10, we start to put on. It's put on the new self. Now, these commands to put off and put on parallel what Paul says in his letter to the Ephesians. In Ephesians 4, 22 to 24, he says the same kind of thing. He says, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life. Notice he says former. You're not living that way. You're not supposed to live that way anymore that former manner which was corrupt through deceitful desires, be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. So the pattern is to put off the old, renew your mind, that is, think differently, and put on the new. To put on and to renew means that you and I intentionally, actively work to align our thinking and choices and actions with God's Word. We're actively, intentionally trying to align what we think and do with God's Word. But do you realize what this means we need to be doing regularly? (laughs) Studying God's Word, reading it, so that we know what God says. We know what God commands. A lot of times we just stop right there, what God commands. Do we look and see what God provides? He provides everything we need. And then what God does, because God is acting too. He's not sitting on his laurels right now. He is busy working. And here's the thing. Many Christians aren't reading the Bible and studying it to know what God says and what God provides and what God does and what he commands. Now, notice too in our verses that the new self is being renewed in knowledge after the image of the creator. He's talking about an ongoing process. It's actually a lifelong process of being changed so that Christians are being made more and more like Jesus, who is our creator. Now, here's another part about this putting off and renewing and putting on. It's to be done. If we're going to do it right, it's to be done in total dependence on God. The minute you and I think, I have to do this. I've got to stop doing this. I need to start doing this. I need to change my thinking. And if God's not in the picture anywhere, we just took a left turn. We're, we're no longer in God's direction, going in God's plan. We're not trying to do it ourselves. We can only do this depending on God. Then in verse 12, some more put on. Put on compassion and kindness, humility, meekness, patience, and forgiveness. If you compare this list with the put-offs, you see it's opposite. And again, if you're thinking, oh, I have to do this, this is like brick on brick on brick on brick. The weight just gets heavier and heavier and heavier. The load I'm carrying around, I have to do all these good things. No. What happens when you spend time, long time with a person? You begin to become like that person. When you spend a long time with Jesus you begin to come become like Jesus. And so you become more kind and humble and meek and patient and forgiving. And we're also given the standard for forgiveness. We're, you and I are to forgive others the way that Jesus forgives you and me, which is completely, totally, no longer between us anymore. It's been put away. Then there's one more put on, verse 14, put on love. And we're not talking here about having a certain kind of feeling. It's a command. Okay? And this kind of loving involves a choice, which means you and I can do the loving when we don't have the loving feelings. Okay? We can do the loving when we don't have the loving feelings because it's a command. And what happens often, the feelings are like the caboose. They come along after we begin. And notice the effect of this love. It binds everything together in perfect harmony. And this harmony is similar to the harmony that the three persons of God have had among themselves since eternity past. They've had total perfect harmony. Then we get to verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And the command, the imperative in here in this verse is rule. So Christians are commanded to let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Well, what does that mean? I'm commanded to let this happen. We're to cooperate. You and I are to submit to God's work in our life. Not only submit, because we can do it with grumbling and we can do it, on you know, not really wanting to. We're to embrace God's command. Well, we see how to get this peace in Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Do not be anxious about anything. Now, why does he say don't be anxious? Same reason the angel said do not fear. They were afraid. He says don't be anxious. Why? Because we naturally get anxious about things. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in in Christ Jesus. There's that phrase again, in Christ. Jesus. So here's what he says. Talk to God. Share your concerns. Give thanks. That's a key one. If all you do is talk to God and share your concerns, you can just kind of stay in this little soup of concern mess stuff. Give thanks. And where does that move us? That moves us to trust God to work. And the result is peace. Then verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. This is a parallel to 15. The verb dwell is the imperative in verse 16. Christians are commanded to let the word of Christ dwell in our hearts. The word dwell means to live, to stay, to camp out, to make itself at home, to stay long term. Let the word of Christ stay long-term in your hearts so it can work. It's like medicine. Sometimes you have to put medicine on a sore or some spot that you've got, and they tell you, put it on two three times a day. Cover it. Why? I want the medicine to stay there. Why? So the medicine can do its work. Let the word of Christ dwell has that same idea, cooperate with God's word, submit to God and God's word, embrace God's word because God's spirit uses God's word in our lives to teach us and encourage us and to convict us when we need it. Then verse 17, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks, there's that thanks again, to God the Father through him. Now notice the way he says this, this doesn't leave any part of life out. There's no exception clause to this. Okay, so do everything in the name of Jesus means that we do everything we do should honor Jesus, should honor the name Christian, and should match the character of Jesus. You and I can't do that on our own. It's actually a standard thing that God does. He says, here's this command. It's impossible for you on your own to do it, but I'm giving it to you anyway. Does he give it to us to frustrate us? No. He gives us the command and then he gives us the way to do it, which is connected to Jesus. He ends with giving thanks to God the Father. Well, you and I can and should thank God every day, all through the day, for every good gift he gives us. And when you slow down enough to start looking, you realize God gives us so, so many. He protected me yesterday in driving. I didn't see a car until I'd already pulled out in front of it and realized, oh my goodness. Okay? Protected. Every good thing you enjoy, your favorite food, your favorite clothes, every these nice seats. Okay? Everything that he gives us that's good, it's his, it's a gift from him that he gives us. So what we've seen today, that a Christian is united with Jesus, by Jesus. And what Jesus does, Jesus forgives us, he pays our debt, he enables our adoption by God so that we're children of God, he gives us his record of perfect obedience, and much, much more. The commands in today's verses have to do with the change God is working. Remember what I said. He gives us a command, something we cannot do on our own, but then he shows us here's how you get there through Jesus, with Jesus. He gives us these commands. It shows us the work that God is doing after we're united with Christ. Now, what do you and I bring to Jesus when he unites with us? We bring our sinfulness and our brokenness our selfishness, our anger, our helplessness, and more. Everything we bring is not good. Did you get that? Everything we bring to Jesus is not good. Okay, it's no wonder, and that's the Christian message. He's going to rescue us, and we need rescue. It's no wonder that the Christian good news is offensive to people. Okay, because the good news isn't just that Jesus rescues us. Because even a, a good person who's trying at times needs some help. No, the message is he rescues us from ourselves. That's hard unless you agree that that's what he does. And today with communion, we remember and celebrate Jesus' love for us. Remember and celebrate Jesus' rescue. So who's called to this table? The people who've asked Jesus to rescue them. But here's another question. Who values this table? People that value this table are people who know that they are needy and helpless and hopeless without Jesus. And know that they're loved by Jesus. So Paul speaks in his letter to Corinth, and he's reminding the Christians about where this meal came from. That Jesus is the one on the night that he was betrayed. He took the Passover meal, which had been celebrated for over a thousand years. He took two parts out of that whole meal, the bread and the wine, and he gave it special meaning, and he said, I want you to keep doing this as a way to remember And so in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took a loaf of bread, he took some matzah, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. One of the commands you see consistently through the Old Testament is remember. Here it comes again in the New Testament. We still need it. Remember. In the same way, Jesus took the cup of wine After supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant, the new covenant relationship between God and you, sealed by the shedding of my blood, do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you're announcing, you are celebrating, you are remembering the Lord's death until he comes again. We need that reminder constantly. We had some elders gathered this morning before the service to pray. And one of the things that I mentioned is that part of God's design is that the, the weekly worship that we do together, corporately, is like a realignment process. God wants to realign us. And all of us, including me, need realignment. We need to be reminded of what God has done. Danny, if you'll come on up. Well, Paul continues in Corinthians and says, gives a warning because he knows we need this. this. This meal represents Jesus' sacrifice. He didn't just give a little. He didn't just risk a little. He gave it all. He gave his whole life to rescue us. And so there's this warning. If anyone eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily, that person is guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. That is why you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking from this cup. For if you eat the bread or drink the cup unworthily, that is not honoring the the body of Christ, you're eating and drinking God's judgment on yourself. So if you and I, and it's so easy for us to come and in the moment to be thinking too much of ourselves, to be thinking too little of Jesus' rescue, His sacrifice, Oh, oh, yeah, I need some help from Jesus, but you know I've got a good start going here. No, we don't. Or today, a big word is authentic. I'm going to be authentic. I'm going to be true to my feelings. And I have this desire, and it isn't Jesus, and I think if I get this person or this thing, whatever it is, that's going to make me happy. And so if the rules you're giving me here, Mark, are... Uh, it needs to I need to be worthy? Well then I just won't take. Well no. This is a realignment. This is opportunity where Jesus says, Yeah, maybe you have something that's grabbed a hold of your heart, but if you're a Christian, if you've asked Jesus to rescue you and he has, then you're his. And he's wanting you to realign, so open your hand and trust that if God if, if this thing you want is God's good for you, he'll give it to you. And if not, he won't. And when you're all said and done, you'll be thankful that he, that he didn't give it to you. So as we come today to this meal, if you've made your own public statement of faith in Jesus, you've turned to him and, Jesus, I need not just a little help, I need rescue. Not just from a few things, but I need my whole life rescued. Because I've messed it up. If you've made that statement of faith and if you then obeyed Jesus and been baptized and you're part of a church in good standing, you're welcome here. As I just mentioned, if you are a Christian, if you made that statement of faith, but your heart has been captured and it happens to all of us, God's answer is open your hand, let it go. Don't let the bread and the wine go past. Instead, take Jesus because he's the only one who will actually satisfy but then there's a third one, and that is if you're here and you haven't ever asked Jesus to rescue you, to forgive you, to save you from yourself, then don't take the bread and the wine, but consider the offer that God makes. He's done all the work. He says done, he's done everything that satisfies his own justice as king of the universe and enables him to show mercy to you and me and to offer forgiveness. And he's done it through Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this meal and this reminder, this realignment that we need regularly to see your love for us and our need. We need to eat every day if we're going to stay healthy physically. We also need to eat spiritually, to feed on you spiritually, to be reminded of your truth of how you call us to live and to, to be reminded of what you've given and what you've provided We thank you for this meal and the reminder. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So at that meal, Passover meal, Jesus took the bread and he broke it. He said the bread represented his body that was going to be broken in the next 24 hours. going to be beaten and whipped and then crucified. He was giving his body so that we could have life. This bread represents Christ's body that was broken to make us whole. Eat all of it. Same night, Jesus took one of the cups of the Passover and he gave it to his disciples saying, This cup represents the new covenant, and again, another word we don't use much, but it means covenant relationship, a new relationship with God based not on our works, but on what Jesus has done through his death and life and resurrection. So as we pass out the tray, uh, the outer circle of each tray is grape juice in the inner circles, our Passover wine.
1: Who walks beside, who floods my weaknesses and strengths and causes fear to climb, who's ever
0: Jesus paid our debt with his life's blood this cup reminds us of his sacrifice drink all of it please pray with me Lord we thank you for your great love for giving yourself for us when we could have cared less of who you are and what you've done and you work in us Give us these commands we cannot do on our own. You enable us as we turn to you, as we say, I need help, as we turn in trust. Lord, we ask that you'd grow that trust and grow this relationship that you've given us as we walk day by day. We thank you for loving us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We have several announcements, and then we will dismiss. So today we have Sunday school at 11:30, both for children and adults. In the adult class, we continue looking at current culture. Today we have a picnic at 12:15, so it's going to be right after Sunday school. And we're asking for some help for those who can to help with setup, setting up some tables and a few other things. So if you'll see Sue Waschasek, if you'll raise your hand, Sue. Hi. Right, there you go. Um, to do that, three different things going on this evening. We got Life Quest at 5:30 for ages, I think, fifth grade and below for children. At 5.30, we also have the new flourishing class that I'm teaching. That will be uh, starting this evening via room one. And then at 6.30, we have youth group will be happening. This coming Saturday, we've got the church work day starts at 9 a.m. Now, apparently there is now a chance of rain possibility. If that happens, if you were on the email list um, that got the, the schedule of what we're doing, You'll also get an email saying that it's canceled. If it is, it'll be rescheduled, I believe. Right, Mark? Okay. Then uh, you see a note in your uh, News Bites about... You want to give that announcement. About the trunk or treat. Jesse.
1: Sure.
2: Apologies if this uh, cuts off my head on the camera. (laughs) Uh, Okay. Okay. I, I am speaking on behalf of my wife, uh, who's working in the nursery today. Um, she is organizing the trunk or treat. Uh, I'll, I'll give a couple of p- bits of information. What it is, is that it is an opportunity to come out at the end of October, uh, put out basically decorations on uh, in the trunk of your car, uh, give out candy, and it's something that we are doing ...over at the Saratoga Community Pool and Tennis Court. So there's a parking lot right over there, just a couple of minutes away. Um, when is it? It's October the 29th. It's going to be from uh, 3 to 5. We'll be doing setup from 2 to 3. Okay, And, and the purpose of this event is to engage with our community here, uh, close to the church, and also to share the gospel with people. Um, there will be uh, a station that we're putting together with uh, the, the Beads Gospel Presentation... And, uh, people will be, um, and people will be people will be guiding the kids through the gospel, and that'll be at the end of the trunk or treat section. So here's what we need. First of all, as always and most importantly, we do need your prayer—a prayer that God would move and work in this event. Um, we also need trunks. So uh, we put together a sign-up sheet last week. I don't know. I think that there's been one person so far that said two people. Three. All right. Three people that have said they're putting together trunks. We would love to have more. We would love to have probably uh, six to ten trunks from different people in in, uh, in Harvester um, that are you know basically uh, getting engaged with the people that are here in this neighborhood. Um, we also need uh, people to help with uh, that gospel presentation portion. It probably will be connected to a trunk, uh, but it may take a few more people. And then we're also going to need... Uh, people to uh, basically help with miscellaneous, miscellaneous uh, like traffic, and uh, there might be a moon bounce, and you know, making sure that you don't have 15 kids, you know, all punching each other in the moon bounce, fun stuff like that. So uh, please talk to my wife Raquel. Uh, she is around. She will be to here today at the picnic, um, and and uh, and please speak with her if there's anything that you can get involved with. Thank you. Uh, to, to be, um, I'm, I'm going to let, I'm going to defer to Raquel on that one. Uh, I think that, yes, we are hoping that people can bring candy. We were also looking into, uh, you know, bulk prices for candy, but uh, I, I don't know the answer to that.
0: For our announcements, again, reminder that if you're able, see Sue Wasishek, uh out in the narthex right after the service dismisses to help with setting up a few tables and a few other things for the picnic. Please stand for the benediction. Now may you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. Go in his peace.
3: I want to start this second lecture with a thought experiment I talked in the first lecture about the... the I want to start this second lecture with a thought experiment. I talked in the first lecture about the, the chaos, the flux, the strangeness of this new world in which we find ourselves. And precisely because of that chaos and that strangeness, it's, it's difficult to boil down the story to, to a single anecdote or to a single point. But I want to engage in a thought experiment that, that kind of captures... The spirit of the age, that, that sort of helps us get to much of what has gone on over the last few hundred years. Imagine going to your doctor maybe a hundred years ago and saying to your doctor, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. Your doctor would have responded, well, well, that's a problem. Uh, that's a problem with your mind and we need to address your mind in order to bring it into line with your body. If you were to go to your doctor today and say the same thing, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body, your doctor would certainly say to you, that's a problem. And he's likely to say to you, that's a problem with your body, and we need to bring your body into line with your mind. Now when you compare those two anecdotes, it's very clear that something remarkable has happened between those two events. Something very deep has taken place within our culture. And I would say what has taken place is this, that our feelings, our psychology, how we think, that, that voice inside our heads, if you like, has taken on peculiar authority, such that not even our bodies now are considered powerful enough or authoritative enough to override it. And that's not just the opinion of doctors, of course, but has become the opinion of people in general in society. The question is, how has that taken place? How have our feelings become so authoritative? Well, it's a long story. It doesn't begin in the last 10, 15, 20 years. It really begins hundreds of years ago. I'm going to start the story with a man called Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Rousseau was an 18th century philosopher, and Rousseau's great insight into what it meant to be human was this, that it was society that messes us up. was society that squeezes us into its mould. And that the real you, the real me, the real person with the inner feelings, uncoerced, untrammeled, unsqueezed into a mould by society. Rousseau was the man who articulated this and said, you know, the way to produce real, authentic people, kind people, empathetic people, is to try to make society conform to our inner feelings, or to to get society out of the way. Rousseau's thinking might be summed up by saying, you are what you feel. It is that inner voice of nature, that cry of nature within you, that determines who you are. Now, Rousseau was a philosopher, and not many people today will have read Rousseau. Maybe some of you have not even heard of him. Yet, I guarantee you that the world in which you live and the way that you perhaps think, certainly the way I think, has been shaped in in powerful ways, intuitive ways, by the thought of Rousseau. One of the reasons for this is that Rousseau's thought was popularized by an artistic movement that we now refer to as Romanticism in the late 18th, early 19th century. Maybe you're familiar with some of the poetry of Percy Bysshe Shelley or William Wordsworth, Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Perhaps the paintings of J.M.W. Turner or Caspar David Friedrich. Perhaps you prefer music. Perhaps you've listened to some of the powerful music of Franz Liszt or, or you're a Beethoven fan and you've listened to Beethoven and you've noticed that in his late string quartets he's starting to sound a little different. One of the things you notice about these artists is they appeal to the emotions the way they write their poetry the way they paint their paintings the way they compose their music is not so much to reflect a a structure and an order as it is to appeal directly to the heart and that really comes out of that way of thinking that we find embodied in the world of Jean-Jacques Rousseau where an important part of who you are is what you feel an important part of who you are is Your psychology. Now it's a long way from William Wordsworth to Caitlyn Jenner. It's a long way from romanticism to transgenderism. But what we notice with the romantic movement is this. That priority on feelings as providing the authentic you is starting to emerge very powerfully in the artistic world of the late 18th and early 19th century. Now I want you to think about today, think about that. First of all, I think it's important to realise that Romanticism, and Rousseau even, is not entirely wrong in this. Think about the Psalms. Think about the amount of emotions that there are in the Psalms. The Bible is very clear that the human beings are emotional beings. The things that inspire us to action are often love and hate. They're things that we feel as much as things that we think, perhaps Things that we feel more so. Think of the story in David and Bathsheba. Think of how his uh, kingdom is is train wrecked because of his inner passions and his inner feelings. Think of Psalm 88 and the expression of emotion there. The, The psalmist is lamenting there. We might say the psalmist is identified with his feelings and with his lamentation there. And notice the form of the psalms. The psalms are poetry. Why are they poetry? Because poetry appeals to more than just our reason, more than just our brains on sticks, if you like. Poetry appeals to our emotions. So I'd want to say that that romanticism certainly captures something that's important and true about what it means to be a human being. We're not just brains on sticks. We're feeling creatures. We have an inner space. We are emotional. And those things are important. Who we are. Notice the power of art as well. How much of the way we think, even about the world around us today, is shaped not so much by arguments we read, but by stories we know, by movies we watch, by music we listen to. And this is where it gets tricky, I think, for Christians. Think about your approach to, say, sexual morality, think about your approach to worldly possessions. Think about your approach to what constitutes the good and the beautiful. And then ask yourself, how much of what you believe or think about those issues is rooted in you thinking back to first principles, to you thinking in terms of arguments and reason? And how much of how you think about those things is really shaped by, say, television programs you've watched or by stories you've heard Or by friendships you've had. By relationships you've experienced. Think about how much of the way you think about morality is perhaps shaped not so much by reason as it is by what we might call gut reaction. By feelings. Think about the language we often use today about morality. We often use language of feeling, don't we? I find that comment offensive. What that person did was Hurtful. That was a very distasteful thing to do. When you think about language like that, that's pointing us towards, I would say, that that kind of romantic sensibility. That human beings, we're, we're constituted by our feelings. We're constituted by our emotions. We're constituted by our passions. And then ask yourself, to what extent is that a legitimate position? for a Christian to have now don't get me wrong I certainly want to say that that feelings are important in the way that Christians operate morally if I look out of the window and I see something really bad being done to somebody say I, I see an old lady being attacked in the street and I don't instinctively feel that is wrong and instinctively feel outrage and instinctively want to help her then you'd say well Truman's a morally defective being in some way feelings are very very important But then ask yourself, how do we balance feelings with reason? Or perhaps better still, how do we make sure that our feelings are properly attuned to the moral principles that the Bible articulates? Think about some aspects of biblical teaching, moral teaching, that perhaps you know in your head is right, but you find really difficult to apply in your daily life and in your interactions with others. Think about why you might feel that difficulty. Is it because a soap opera or sitcom has sent an image of of that thing that you know is a virtue and presented it as a vice? Has it taught you to feel wrongly about that good thing? So to go back to where I started this lecture, that uh, prioritising that we see in the modern world of, of feelings over what we might say external authority, even the authority of our body, that really starts in the 18th century. The complicated thing is it's, it's not an entirely bad thing. But knowing, knowing that story, knowing how feelings have come to dominate how we think and bringing them to bear against biblical teaching, that's going to be part of the key for us to think correctly and morally about the world in which we now find ourselves as we move forward.